What's up, everybody? Welcome to the TAM Venture Capital Podcast. My name is Fernanda Sesto. I was born and raised in Uruguay, but I've been in the United States since 2019. I came to the States to study, and in May, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Business and a minor in Computer Science from the University of Rochester. Now I'm continuing my studies doing a Master's in Business Analytics at the Simon Business School. I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship, technology, and building things. I've been involved in the startup community for about four years now, doing different fellowships and internships. I created this podcast because I want to empower potential investors with insights into LATAM's thriving landscape and also guide Latin American entrepreneurs through the intricacies of US VC dynamics. I interview investors and entrepreneurs to learn more about their career backgrounds, market thoughts, and provide guidance to anyone who's interested in investing in Latin America. In this episode, I talked to Ivan Montoya, managing partner of Numundo Ventures, a pre-seed and seed venture capital fund. Ivan is considered a super angel and has invested in over 15 Latin American startups. He previously worked at McKinsey and Yahoo and received his MBA from Stanford and bachelor's from Harvard. Hi, Ivan. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Fernanda? I'm good. I'm good. Currently in Rochester, uh, just finished the pre-fall term. So I have some downtime before the semester starts with the master's program. Great. So, yeah, I would love to have you here. So can you just tell me more about yourself so the audience knows more about what you do and, and in general, your, your career background? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with what I'm doing today. So I'm the founding general partner of an early stage VC firm called Numundo Ventures. And uh, we invest in kind of between pre-seed and seed stage Latin American fintech, prop tech, and supply chain companies. Uh, prior to Numundo Ventures, I've been a very active angel in Latin America, investing in over 40 uh, pre-seed, seed stage companies. I'm originally from Colombia. Uh, I've spent most of my life in the United States, uh, most of my professional career in Silicon Valley, working at various technology companies and startups, and um, you know, had a long-standing um, connection to Latin America, and I was looking for opportunities to do something there, and the opportunity arose to start angel investing back in 2019, and, um, and that's how I, I started going down the path of uh, being an investor and supporter of startups. Yeah, awesome. Uh, that's great. Thank you. So yeah, as we mentioned before in, in our conversations, like you've been really active in the Latin American startup ecosystem for years. And now you just said uh, you started angel investing as well. So I just want to learn more about what exactly was your original motivation to get involved with the with the region and the founders there. Yeah, so my original motivation is very uh, kind of a personal motivation. So I was born in Colombia. We moved to the U.S. when I was very young. My parents were from very large families. My mom was one of 11. My father was the youngest of five. And we would always go back and forth to Colombia over the summers and, and Christmas times up until 1989. And I was there when the leading presidential candidate was assassinated and I had just finished my first year of college and uh, both of my parents are doctors. I was supposed to be a doctor. Um, I told my mom that I finished the pre-med requirements, but I wanted to learn something that maybe down the road I could help Columbia. And so I did economics, did my thesis on the Colombian economy, 
um, ended up not being a doctor, uh, worked at McKinsey, spent six months in Mexico City on a project, you know, it's kind of my way of trying to get back into Latin America. But the situation in the early 90s in Colombia, for sure, but even in Mexico City, it was starting to get very violent. And so I thought my window to do something in Latin America shut, end up coming out to Stanford for business school. You know, the Internet is, is booming. Uh, I end up doing all this stuff in technology. I go back to Columbia for the first time in 24 years in 2013 to visit a classmate of mine. And I remember thinking things were better, but maybe not the way I'd hoped or the way I'd remembered. And uh, went back five years later when my eldest daughter graduated college. And it felt like uh, an inflection point had happened. The, the, we went to Medellin, Cartagena, Bogota, and um, it was like night and day. And I remember coming back and talking to a friend of mine, Cuban-American guy who was the CFO of a company called Atlassian. He's now a venture partner at Excel. And uh, I just felt like, you know, maybe that window that I thought it shut, it suddenly opened again, right? And uh, where maybe my experiences as an operator and kind of being kind of growing up professionally in Silicon Valley over the last 20 to 30 years, that maybe this was an opportunity to give back. And so I told my friend, um, Alex, I said, hey, I don't know what it was like to be in, in China in the year 2000, but I think the next 20 years are going to be very big in Latin America. We should get involved. And maybe six months later, he gets a cold inbound LinkedIn uh, message from a founder in Colombia, a company called Pickup, um, does ride hailing on motorcycles. And I'll, I'll tell the rest of the story later, but that was sort of the beginning. Uh, I invested 25000 into that company, and uh, that sort of began my journey of, of, of doing stuff in Latin America. But it was very much, to me, it was like, wow, this second opportunity uh, to potentially instead of helping Latin America from a top-down perspective, which is probably what I thought I would do when I was in, in college, and more bottoms up, you know, founder by founder, um, trying to help out. Yeah, it's very, very inspiring. I I really like that. Also, I was just thinking that you were in Stanford while the internet started, like the, the internet started I mean, during the boom of the internet. I think that must have been a very exciting period as well. And like seeing all the tech companies um, start to starting to appear, I think. I mean, and also thinking about now how the, the state of technology we have now and having seen all the trajectory for you as a, someone who's been involved in Silicon Valley for so many years, probably gave you a lot of perspective and insights as well for the future. Yeah, it's so uh, funny. I haven't even thought about the the time period when I was there, but um, it was so new and there were no social networks. There was no like all of this. The Internet really wasn't there. Right. I mean, it was there, but it was a very rough version of the Internet. It was basically like, you know, magazines put online with super slow bandwidth, whatever. And so I think for maybe the first year, it was almost hard to tell what was going on. Right. Because. Uh, But then by the time I graduated, eBay had gone public and then we knew people like you knew classmates of the previous like, you know, graduating classes or founders of eBay or founders of whatever. And like this, you know, what would seem crazy at the time. Um, and then you realize you were in the middle of something very special. Right. Um, and so for sure, I think since then, you know, both on the way up and on the way down, 
you know, you, the, the older you get, the more uh, you realize there are these pendulums. But sometimes when, when there's a window, you got to go for it, right? And I think, uh, you know, that was something, it was quite interesting to observe up close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, kind of similar to what's happening now with AI, I feel like a lot of things are, uh, you know, happening in the industry, a lot of new products and people are sometimes a little bit confused um, of what's going on. And so even though it's completely different in terms of like the, the type of technology, I don't know why you gave me that um, resemblance. So, um, okay, so talking about more like investing and trends in Latin America, I'd love to hear more about what your angel investing method is like and uh, how your experience as an angel investor shaped your perspective now as you start your own fund. Yeah, so my approach evolved quite a bit, right? And I will have to say that I'm going to note two people who kind of created some inspiration for what I did before I started. One was a podcaster and very prominent angel investor and investor now, Jason Calacanis. So I had, I've been listening to podcasts forever. And I remember starting to listen to This Week in Startups. Gosh, I don't know how long it's been, but like 13 years, a long time. And, you know, just hearing his story of how he angel invested in Uber and other companies. And he came out with a book called The Angel. Um, and uh, that was very uh, foundational for me, right? I think it made me, uh, when the opportunity to invest in pickup came up, instead of it being like, huh, should I invest? For me, I was like, it was like I had a prepared mind. I was ready to go. And when I saw the opportunity, uh, I went forward. And then the other one I would say is a guy named Andy Ratcliffe. He was the founder of Benchmark Capital. He's now the CEO of Wealthfront. He's a professor at Stanford. And uh, he once said about angel investing, he said a lot of things about angel investing, but but some not so good. But but uh, I think I remember him saying once that angel investing was for suckers or something like that. But basically, it's super high risk. And I think he modified that over time and said that um, if you're going to angel invest, you need to invest in at least 20 to 30 companies. Otherwise, the risk profile is so high, right? Um, and, and between the two of them, I realized that if I wanted to angel invest or the way I wanted to angel invest needed to be systematic. So I knew from the beginning, I wanted to invest in at least 30 companies. And I knew I, I wanted to, to have a, a deliberate process. Now, over the course of four years, my process evolved quite a bit. But what I can say, uh, let's say prior to starting New Mundo Ventures, I, I eventually kind of uh, settled in on this methodology. Um, so I'll first start with kind of basic stuff and then and then kind of how I evaluated companies. Uh, one thing is I had a consistent check size. Um, so that's a piece of feedback people will give because if you're trying to say, do I invest 1,000 or 5,000? That's just another layer of complexity and just take that out of the equation. Um, the other thing is for your goal as an angel, and everybody's a little different. Everybody's capital is a little bit different. This is no different than a fund. Like sometimes I hear the term, the fund size is the strategy. Well, it's the same thing for an angel. If you say you've got a budget of $100,000, right? Then one way you figure out your check size is $100,000 divided by 30, right? Or another way to say it is like, well, if one of them hits, 
what is the outcome that you want, right? And just for argument's sake, if if you invest as an angel very early and you get a 50x return on something, and let's say you want it to be worth a million dollars. And I'm just making that up. But 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 whatever it is, right? I remember one angel investor told me like it's hard enough to find one that takes off. Uh, that at least you want to put in enough capital that if it does take off, it's worth something to you, right? So between all of the, that analysis, I ultimately settled on $20,000 per investment. And so that was very consistent. And then um, my investing approach is, I think, very similar to a VC, right? So I looked at a lot of companies, tons of deal flow. We can talk a little bit about how I did that. But but lot I, I evaluated a lot of companies and I, I basically looked for four or five things. One general philosophy I have is that um, both it's not just the founder that matters. Everybody talks about, I think that the mythology of the great founder and no doubt the founders are super important, but for me, it's, I almost lead with what is the problem they're solving? Is it a really, really painful problem they're solving and how well do they solve it? Are they, you know, quote unquote, 10 X better than the alternative? Uh, it's by far the most important thing I start with. I had a, a meeting with the founder earlier today, and that's what we spent all our time, you know, a, a asking him to show me before your product, what did your customer do? After your product, what was the impact? How do you quantify that, right? So that's super important to me. Um, then I get into more of their their go-to-market, right? What does it take for them to be a million dollars in revenue? What does it take to get to 10 million? What does it take to get to 100 million? Because ultimately, if you're going to have a venture type outcome, you've got to be able to understand that. Um, and uh, and then getting into the unit economics, I'm very old school. I think the funding environment in Latin America is very difficult. So I like to invest in companies that are you know, have a potential to be cash flow positive before Series A. Um, and I, I really admire founders who bootstrap. Uh, so a lot of founders that I back either have been bootstrapping or bootstrapped for a while. Um, and then uh, and then obviously then it comes down to the team, right? And and I tend to work with founders as long, anywhere from a month to three months, helping them before I invest. And that's an opportunity for them to evaluate me. Uh, but also for for me to understand how they operate and get more conviction on what they're doing. So anyway, I said a lot. So let me pause there and see um, if you have any questions. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, I really like the way you um, like, I think it's very important to like understand the, the strategy in, in the way that, uh, you know, as an angel investor, you can operate um, alone and then also have a good, yeah, have a good vision of like, what are you looking for? Like, for example, you just mentioned um, that you you don't look necessarily so much, oh, you, it is important, like the team and the founder, but most important, the problem, like the problem is, is like at the end of the day, what's going to make a difference in, in the market and how they're solving that, the approach. I think sometimes um, in VC, I hear a lot that the most important thing is the team. Um, which I, I understand why, since like, I guess like, there's a, a lot of like assumptions made at the beginning. Um, so it's harder to quantify things, but uh, definitely like, I guess like looking at and being able to to understand the problem and, and the solution 
that they are proposing is also really like critical. So thank you. Uh, I really appreciated that. Um, so in terms of like your thesis, you focus a lot on fintech, prop tech and logistics and commerce as well. So how is your process of defining that? And what aspects did you take into consideration when you were looking at that, especially in Latin America? I know fintech is really big in Latin America, so kind of have a background in that and understand why. But I'm curious to know more about prop tech and logistics. All right. So. It was a very organic process for me, right? When I did that first investment in 2019, uh, I, I was open to investing in, in in being an angel investor in Latin America, but by no means, you know, I had a day job. I was working at a startup. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't have a master plan that says, hey, these are the three sectors I'm going to go after. But it was, I would say the first year was very informative for me. Because the more founders I met, the more common, the more obvious it became to me certain areas of the economy that had tons of friction. So let's just talk about logistics, supply chain commerce, right? So this first company I invested in was Pickup. And through Pickup, I learned how bad traffic is in Latin America on a global level. It was like out of the 10 worst cities with traffic, there were five of them in Latin America. Bogota apparently is horrific. And, you know, this company um, was focused on helping essentially people with less income who, you know, they get on a bus in Medellin and maybe it takes them two hours to get downtown because of all the stops and the traffic. If they took an Uber, maybe they cut out 20 minutes of that commute because they don't have all the stops, but it still takes them a long, long time. And then for the price of a little bit more than a bus, they get on the back of a motorcycle and they're downtown in 20 minutes. And so that started the initial spark of like, huh, if it's that tough to move people, how terrible is it to move goods, right? Um, and then yeah, I met a company called 99 Minutos in March of 2020, so right before the pandemic started. And their whole idea was e-commerce delivery. And so I'm like, huh, e-commerce is probably growing. I'd heard of Mercado Libre. How do they actually get goods from point A to point B? Is there a UPS? Is there equivalent infrastructure? So my hypothesis on 99 Minutos, oh, they want to build the UPS of Latin America, right? Um, and so you start doing more and more of this and you realize like the supply chain at all levels had friction, uh, not just kind of uh, on you know traditional delivery, but also you know, companies like Nowports and Nuvo Cargo and others around trade, right? Um, and then the other one, um, I would say PropTech, kind of a little bit FinTech, same thing. I remember hearing the story of about of a, of a you know, somebody from the US, they moved to Mexico City and they said it took him forever to rent an apartment. I'm like, why? And he's like, he's like, first of all, it was horrific. It was hard to tell what was available, what prices, whatever. So I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And then, and then, but the bigger thing was they had to get like somebody to vouch for them. Like, uh, and it couldn't be like a family member. It was like this, I think something because there isn't a good credit scoring system and whatever. And so you had to go find somebody to say, hey, uh, this guy's good for the money. You can trust him, whatever. And I'm like, that sounds like a nightmare uh, on something so basic, it's, but so fundamental as housing. There's all this friction. I'm like, yeah, not not to say in the U.S. I think there's tons of friction still in in the housing, but I'm like, okay, that's the biggest asset class. 
Uh, it's one of the most fundamental human needs. Um, it's almost like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for me. It was like, let me start with the things that are most fundamental that have a lot of friction and where there's lots of opportunity. And as a, an angel, you know, I need to focus on something. Uh, and so that's what I did. So it was a little bit bottoms up and then some mm. self-reflection. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's, uh, I think the, the property problems, like the PropTech uh, companies are really solving a key uh, issue in Latin America. I, in Uruguay, I mean, where I'm from at this is like very hard to find rentals or like to find properties for sale uh kind of like it works it's like you just walk around a neighborhood and see what like the the banners are that says for sale um it, there's it's like there's it's very it's very hard so definitely it's a key problem there and then for the commerce aspect i think it's interesting because commerce is growing and i think fintech is enabling that think the fintech growth in latin america has enabled so many other industries and so like my next question is actually about that so, I mean, fintech is the largest vertical, like, and it has received so much funding, especially in 2021. Um, so what do you think is the next vertical that is going to have this amount of growth in in Latin America? So, like, I guess, like, related to trends as well. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is somewhat speculative because I I um, I feel like, especially with a, as a solo GP and as an angel before that, um, I need to focus, right? And there's still so many opportunities in, in the three areas I focus on. But one area where I've seen, I've been open to meeting founders and it's somewhat out of my scope, but but it's it seems like a big uh, trend is, I guess what you'd call vertical SaaS, right? So people building software for specific industries. So it could be healthcare related, right? You know, it could be, you know, like a, Try to make it easier for people to book appointments with doctors to, um, you know, uh, software to manage physician practice organizations to fintech solutions that are focused on in this example that I'm giving, you know, healthcare. But it's it's in other industries, too. Like, I, you know, I talked to a company a couple of days ago that's a, like supporting private schools. Right. There was a firm in Mexico, I think, called Matilda which is more of a fintech, I guess you could argue a vertical fintech where I think they're helping, um, you know, tuition payments and things like that. And you get, you start going into some of these markets and it's like, wow, that's a big market, right? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll do one example from the US, Toast, right? It was a software for restaurants, right? Uh, point of sale software, and then they just expanded and started doing payments, but, um so I think vertical software, uh, you know, vertical industry specific software uh, is going to, you know, is already growing. I'm guessing it's going to grow a lot. And it also overlaps with fintech. You have some fintechs that start off as a fintech. Let's say uh, there's a company that I'm familiar with in Colombia called uh, Fincargo, um, and they focus on trade finance. So people who are, you know, doing shipments to China uh, back and forth with Latin America, wherever the trade route might be. And so they do some financial products so that the, you know, the shippers or the, the, the carriers get paid better. And, uh, but then it turns out they can build some software around it that are more into the workflow. Like how do you ship and, and schedule and so on. And so you can sometimes start with a FinTech product and then start adding 
software around it. But I, I think the whole vertical software, vertical industry software uh, is going to be a bigger trend in, in Latin America. Awesome. Yeah, I love that question because I learn a lot about different perspectives from different investors. And I think um, I've uh, definitely SaaS is like a big thing. And, and I think definitely for Latin America, it's important as well because it would enable the growth of many other in industries and companies that would, you know, in return, maybe create more opportunities for other things to emerge. Um, I also learned that recently that the creator economy is actually growing a, a lot as well in, in Latin America because Latin Americans are one of the largest uh, consumers of social media content. So I think there's also opportunity there. I don't know if you know anything about that, but um, it's, it's yeah, I've actually seen See, met with several founders in the creator space. Brazil apparently is like one of the top markets in the world for TikTok and all of that. Um, you know, I, I don't play in that space and, and it's not to say anything negative about it, but I think there's, I think in anything, my perspective is uh, it really values, to there's value in at least getting some level of specialization so that you see enough companies in the space you can actually help founders because you're seeing a lot of trends and and you can, uh, but more as an investor, you can realize what's an outlier versus not, right? Mm -hmm. Like some, wow, I've seen 15 creator tools companies and this one is different, right? Yeah. But for sure, I've, I've been pitched a lot of creator um, economy related things and I'm sure there's going to be, you know, hopefully some really interesting companies in Latin America. Yeah, and I think what you just mentioned about the, being able to identify outliers comes with also like kind of like the art of venture investing, which is like pattern recognition a little bit. And it goes perfectly to my next question, which is like, what are some unique characteristics you see in Latin American founders that you don't necessarily see in the U.S.? Hmm. <laughs> it's a tough one. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um. If you see anything, you might not see. It can be negative. Positive. The reason I'm pausing on this is I, I sort of believe. Well, I guess I can answer that in in a cynical way, or I would say in a more in what I see, right? But the cynical answer, uh, or maybe the trite answer, is that uh, founders in Latin America are having to deal with more hardship and. And, you know, the funding environment has always been less uncertain, so they're more resilient and all that. And I think while there's some truth to that, for sure, um, I think the the really great teams look more similar than they look different, right? Um, I know, Fernando, you and I have talked about this founder before, but I invested in a 20-year-old founder who hadn't gone to college and was just phenomenal, uh, a founder who um, uh, was super thoughtful, right? Um, very competitive, but humble, right? And just got stuff done. And the reason I ended up backing them, aside from understanding the market opportunity and the product that they had, was he reminded me of a founder in the US who had a totally different background, who went to MIT, who went to Stanford, who had, in theory, all of these privileges that this founder in Latin America did not have. But yet, to me, they were very similar. And that's what gave me the confidence to back this young person. Um, so I would make the argument that oftentimes really strong founders and executives are they're more similar than they are different. 
you know, to me, it's like a sport or being a musician, right? Like, is the musician, is Maluma as a musician in Mayin, yeah, how is he different than, I don't know, I don't know, Drake? I don't know, they're different, but they're musicians, right? They have a certain way of doing things. And, and I think when you work with very talented people, you know, I don't care where you're from. You could be from, you know, Timbuktu, and you might recognize somebody and say, oh, my God, that person's incredible. Right. They're so effective. They're whatever these skills. So for sure, they have to be resilient. And if you have somebody from Argentina, I'm sure they've seen everything, you know, and why I think there are some countries where you see disproportionate number of entrepreneurs because they've had to deal with a lot of uncertainty at a young age. But but when it's all said and done, I think, you know, uh, strong executives are are strong executives, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really good perspective also because I've read so much about implicit bias, um, but not from like an outsider perspective, but when you yourself know this, like, oh, I come from this maybe not so privileged background and you have your own bias about how people are going to perceive you. And that can sometimes um, not encourage you to take risks or start things. But then if you understand that no matter like where your background is um what your background is and you still are able to achieve same amount of results or traction as someone who has all this privilege then you know you have a lot of um potential and like strength strength as well so i think um it's i just asked the question because i think there might be differences but yeah as you said like similarities also play a big factor in, and it helps to reduce that bias that sometimes we have now, here's what i'll say like I'm I'm an N of one, right? So I'm not sure I'm representative of the typical investor, and I may not be. Uh, and I would go so far as to say I'm definitely not representative of the typical Latin American investor. I do think there's no way around it. Latin America is a very uh, status-driven society, probably like every society to some degree. But I think one of the benefits of operating in Silicon Valley for so many years is that. You know, here at some point, it's about the numbers. You know, at some point, hey, whether you're an Indian founder or whether you're an American founder or whether you're a Latin founder, if you're solving a problem that's very interesting, you're doing it in a unique way and the business is taking off, capital will flow wherever, you know, uh, somebody's doing something very successful and interesting. Um, but, but, I think in the earliest stages, when you don't have those signals, when you don't have the you know five years of revenue metrics, or you don't have all of this, then that's when bias creeps in, right? Because if you are, um, you know, if your frame of reference in Latin America, let's just say, it's ironic because I'm the one saying this, and I have a lot of these credentials, but you know, if your point of reference is like, well, yeah, the only big exit, let's say, ten years ago in Latin America was Mercado Libre or something like that. And the founders all went to Stanford or whatever. Well, if you're an investor, what do you look for? Okay, where did you go to school? Um, did you work at whatever, right? And and it, it perpetuates itself, right? And if you're launching and you haven't launched your pre-launch or PowerPoint stage at that point, well, this person went to this school, this person went to that school. So I do think that there is still a ton of bias, but uh, I think this is where 
hopefully we've got some new investors coming into the to the ecosystem like myself um and you know i i do you know it, it's hard i i don't want to i don't want to sugarcoat it right because uh, i think there was during the bubble period there was this in addition to the mythology of the the importance of the founder uh which again super important but i think it i think it might be a little overdone um was also the idea that everybody could be a founder and that's absolutely not tr true i could never be a founder right uh it is hard it's like saying everybody can be an olympic athlete everybody can play an olympic sport but how many people make it to the olympics right and so whatever your field is it's hard work right but i think um i'm hopeful that more over time it's more about performance right um but for sure there's still a lot of bias no doubt yeah yeah i personally hope that as we have more data driven techniques that can analyze more like qualitative data not necessarily you know mm -hmm. those metrics like very rigid metrics that we don't have in early stage then we can start detecting maybe some uh, qualities in founders that you know can represent the majority um and not just like the very minority mm -hmm. of people who just you know go to like very privileged schools and then have all these resources available to them that allow them but it's hard it's a hard topic i'm very interested in it from a technical perspective because there's also the, the data is biased already since most of the founders that are successful did have maybe like a school income or, or stuff like that so how do we measure that but but well, yeah i'll say one um, last, comment. I'll say one last mm -hmm. comment that's no different if you were in silicon valley in the 1970s you know, who were all the startups? There were startups from semiconductor people who worked at, at more, uh, I forget, Fairchild Semiconductor, whatever. So if you did an analysis of like who was successful, you'd say, oh, you have to have a PhD in, in you know, some engineering or whatever. And then all of a sudden you get Steve Jobs who went to Reed College and studied uh, liberal arts. Now you're thinking, well, was that an outlier or is there something there, right? And then mm -hmm. you start to get more and more profiles as the as the ecosystem matures and develops. And so I think we're also, we're still fairly early in Latin America. And I'm hopeful that this next in the next 10 years, you're going to now start to see a lot of different types of founder archetypes that were successful. Um, and then now it'll be like, well, yes, yeah, somebody from this background can be successful. Here's five examples. Um, so I, I think that's it's a maturation process as well. Mm, yeah, great, great insight. So last question. Uh, you don't really come from a family of investors, as you mentioned. Um, your parents were in medicine. So I also don't have anyone in my family in the finance industry. So what type of or like what is some advice that you would give people like us, like young people who are interested in investing in Latin America, working with founders, especially underrepresented groups, as we we're talking, who are trying to break into VC? Um, well, so, uh, I guess there's two ways I would come at this. Number one is you got to make sure you really want to do this, right? Like, uh, and why are you doing it? Right. I mean, I think it, there's some, like I said, there's some glamorization of all of this and it's actually not that glamorous work. It's like, it's like, uh, I, I, I keep going back to the athletic analogy. Like what if, uh, somebody said, yeah, um, rowing olympic rowing is the best thing possible and they make movies of olympic rowing whatever i challenge you to go row 
it's a pretty hard, exhausting thing, right? To go in there and do that. And so uh, I think you need to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons because startups are very unpredictable. It's probably on average, if you're a founder or an operator, odds are it's not going to work out that well, right? And so I would encourage young people to get a few experiences in the space, whatever it is. If you want to go work at a startup, go work at a startup. If it's if it's doing something in finance, make sure you enjoy finance, right? Um, but assuming you do that, and this is an area of, of, of true interest and curiosity, um, I encourage people to network like crazy, right? Get to know other people, go to events, whatever, right? Because a lot of what happens in this space is serendipitous. You know, if you're an investor, the best way to make better investments is meet a lot of founders because it maybe you meet this founder and it's not the right one, but you learn something from that one. And they say, hey, let me introduce you to my friend who's doing this. And then that's the one that ends up working. Same thing, you know, in VC, I've seen young people who start in one area of finance, but they want to get into VC. So they meet all these people, they get involved in all this stuff. And then all of a sudden somebody says, you know what? There's a uh, analyst position opening up. You know, you should apply, right? You don't even know that that analyst position is even available if you don't meet people, right? Um, so I would encourage you to network a lot. Yeah, networking is always key in this space. <laughs> uh, always get that that advice from from investors from everybody. It's cool. It, I think it has um, a lot of power, but. Also, I think a lot of people feel a little bit awkward networking. So I guess like trying to like get more comfortable with the think about more like of a learning experience and not just, you know, actually be genuine about your interest with the person, not just for the sake of. And this is, uh, you know, I'm 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 actually quite an introvert. I think a like in the definition of introversion, I think, is you get your energy from within. Right. You know, maybe ideas, thoughts, what you read, whatever, as opposed to maybe an extrovert, maybe gets their energy through other people primarily. Right. Um, and. But in what I do, it's nonstop meeting people. Right. And I think for me, you you made a comment that I think is super important. This is general life advice, unsolicited. But um, I think you're happiest when you're doing something that you're inherently curious about. They're like, ah, I'm, I want to learn more about that, right? And so for me, in terms of networking and or meeting founders or meeting other investors, I'm like, I'm genuinely curious. You know, you like you want to learn, like, oh, what do you do? Oh, that's super interesting. Why do you do that? Wow, how did you get started? Right. And if you feel, you know, if that gives you energy to be curious, right, then it, it's a very genuine thing. Um, as opposed to, hey, I gotta go to 10 parties and hey how are you doing you know whatever it's super awkward right um it's taking more of, of a learning experience right and try to you know go to an event or meet with people i, I take so many lunch meetings and it, there'll be operators of all types whether they're raising or not raising and i'm learning and my idea is like hey this person maybe a year from now i can help them connect with somebody or a year from now, they can help me connect with somebody. Or a year from now, I can put two and two together. And that comment that came up in this meeting will be useful for me in some other place. So if you view it from more from a learning perspective. Yeah, exactly. 
that's how I do it as well. Cause like I was, I used to feel a little bit nervous about networking, especially when it's like cold outreach. Uh, but since I started thinking about it from like a learning mentality and it's like, I just want to learn about what this person is doing, about how they got where they are right now. It's just way less nerve wracking. And also it's actually like interesting to hear. And like, it's what I'm actually curious about. So yeah, well, thank you so much, Ivan. This was really interesting conversation and I really appreciated that you took the time to join the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. And uh, thank you very much and good luck, Fernanda. Mm -hmm. I really, really like this conversation. I think Ivan has a really interesting perspective uh, about Latin America and especially because he's worked in Silicon Valley. He has this experience as um, investing in and working in the United States. Um, but then also he has this culture and cultural and personal background that connects him to LATAM and allows him to understand why Latin American founders are so special. And um, and I think it's very interesting also how he sees similarities more than differences between both entrepreneurs in the United States or all over the world and, and Latin American, which I, I honestly find that very, like a very good point because at the end of the day, these people who are entrepreneurs and starting companies and following their passions and visions they all are very driven by by that. And, and those are the ones who are going to change the world, right? <laughs> That's why we love to work with entrepreneurs. So yeah, I hope that you had a fun listening to this episode and come back next week for more.